0: Good morning, everyone. My name's Pete Snow. I'm assistant minister here. Shall we pray as we come to this psalm? Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We, uh, we recognize that this psalm talks about everyday realities of life on planet Earth. We come to you for help, Father. We, we need help as we deal with life. We deal with these situations as we shed tears in this life. And we pray that you would teach us now from your word. And we ask it boldly expecting you to say yes because of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're very kind. Thank you so much. This psalm, Psalm 74, requires you to picture the scene. So can you picture the scene with me? This is vivid. It's picture language. Often, as we we begin to do this, the Psalms do this for you. They they provide a commentary on the rest of the Bible. So in the rest of the Bible, what we often get is the most amazing story and its narrative, and it paints the picture of God's people all the way through the last few thousand years. And then the Psalms, someone sits down and says, wow, this is such an extraordinary event, I have to write a song about it. Which is still something people do today when they go through extraordinary events. And they paint the picture for you again, and they give you a little commentary on God. And the Psalms contain more propositional statements about God than any other book in the Bible, New Testament or Old. They say things about God, like in verse 12, which is our key verse today, the turning point of the whole Psalm. God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. Just so here. There's emotional turmoil. We're about to picture the scene, and we're invited to say, ah, but I remember this about God. He is my king from long ago, and he brings salvation on earth. We know with almost certainty what this psalm was a response to. It was written up in 2 Kings 24 and Jeremiah 51. So you get twice in the Bible the same thing narrated. And this seems to be the response to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. 587 BC. Which, by the way, is really cool because uh, the page number this morning is 587 so uh, if sometimes we preachers, we just throw out historical dates at you, and it's really hard to remember them. But not today, my friends, not today. <laughs> the year was 587 B.C., and so was the page number. So Psalm 74. Picture the scene. The fall of Jerusalem, the sack of Jerusalem, happened the night before, and everything is smoking rubble. It was burned by Babylon's army. And we know this, as I said, from uh, these passages where it's written up. We know that they set fire to the royal palace. So that's a distressing thing. That's a horror, isn't it? If you see Buckingham Palace going up in flames. We know that they set fire to every house in the city. So that everywhere you walk in the streets, the morning after the the sack of Jerusalem, there is crying and there is wailing and there are fires still burning and there is soot and ashes and rubble. We know that they broke down the city walls. So they made sure... However they could, with all their machines of war, that they got those massive stones and they put them out and they created a rubble-strewn field, a ruin, and they made sure that Jerusalem was wrecked so that it was entirely vulnerable and exposed. We know in particular that they torched the temple. So in Jerusalem, that was obviously the crowning glory, more so than the royal palace. It was supposed to be the temple mount which spoke about the specialness of the city and of God's people, and they burned it. So if you had looked at that temple, you would have seen... Charred stumps of joists and rafters where the ceiling had been burned. You would have seen the big, big stones black with um, fire soot. You would have seen everything valuable from the temple that they couldn't that they that could carry away disappearing through the door to Babylon on a cart. They took all the bronze stuff, all the silver stuff, and all the gold stuff. Anything they could carry. The two massive pillars that stood either side of the door, they made sure they toppled them and they chopped them up into bits. There was no temple left anymore. And the king, Zedekiah at the time, he's gone. They've taken him away, first of all. They made sure they killed his sons in front of him, and then they poked out his eyes. This is a time of national disaster, 587 B.C. Do you get the feeling? Do you get the emotion that's going through this guy's head when he sits down and thinks, I've got to channel this, I've got to write something about this, because this is turmoil for our nation. It was so bad... That it led to a sort of national crisis of faith. And eventually it wrapped up the whole Old Testament. This is the low point. Some Psalms are about personal disasters that, you know, they they affect me, they're painful for me. But this Psalm is about macro, national disaster. So Asaph, probably the choir master at the time, sits down and writes Psalm 74 in this crisis of faith. What is God doing? And why did he let this happen? Sometimes you go through these crises of faith, don't you, on a big scale. If you've been here regularly, you know, uh, we've been talking about planting a, a church, a, a, grafting a new congregation into St. Paul's Haringey. Forgive me, I know I can't go through half an hour at the moment without talking about it. The staff have started to laugh at me because I keep bringing up St. Paul's Haringey. Humor me, humor me for just a little bit longer. We have a picture here. Uh, the year was 1984, and that was the old church of St. Paul's Harringay. So it was this big Victorian barn. It was a church like this, cavernous, huge, kind of beautiful. And it burned in a day because someone left a candle burning near a piece of wood. So the morning after, it, this is 1984, the morning after the church had the experience of walking through the rubble on the floor there, the, the charred and broken mess, and thinking, this is a... Disaster. This is a, you know, maybe not a national disaster, but this is a community disaster, a parish disaster. I think we've got another one here. It, it, everything was a mess, all broken. What are we going to do now? That's the reason they have that curious modern building now, because that one burned. Thank you, John. Christians go through this, and what do you say to God when you pick your way through the ruins of your church building? What are you? What's going on? I was reading in the Open Doors prayer diary this week that in India, the persecution of Christians is increasing recently. They told one story about a 19-year-old girl who was um, raped and murdered by her fiancé. She was a Christian. He was a Hindu. And uh, her parents told him, if you're going to get married, you'll just have to respect her Christian faith. So in response to that statement, he raped and murdered his fiancée, their daughter. What do you do? If you're a Christian in India and that's routine, that sort of thing happens to you, what do you say to God? How do you express that? Maybe you're facing an injustice at the moment that feels like it's just on a big scale. Maybe if you're not at the moment, you will do in the future and you need to know how to respond. It may not be a national disaster, but it certainly feels macro. It certainly feels big in your life. What are you going to say to God then? Maybe something like verse 1 in our psalm. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? You see how the psalms, they can give you words to say when you don't quite know what to say yourself. It feels, God, like you've rejected me forever and your anger is smoldering against me. The first half of our psalm this morning is full of questions like that, verses 1 to 11. The second half, the questions fade away and there is a bit more hope. It all revolves around this idea in verse 12 that God is my king and he brings salvation, but we'll get to that. Okay, so just two halves this morning. They feel... The first half is bleaker, just to warn you. The first half we're going to see that my God is holding back justice. Verses 1 to 11. And the second half we'll see that, but I know my God brings salvation. So firstly, my God is holding back justice. Let's read again from the beginning. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Asaph is saying here, look, to be honest, Lord, it feels like you've rejected us forever. It feels like, you know, we were some clothes you enjoyed for a while and then you got bored of us and you took us to the charity shop or you threw us in the bin. It just feels like you've cast us off. Verse 2 is full of reminders. You remember, Lord, the nation you purchased long ago. You remember how you brought us out of Egypt, Lord? You, you paid for us with the price of so many lambs and lives. And you brought us out. You purchased us. Remember that we're the people of your inheritance. You said you were going to enjoy us forever. We're going to be your inheritance. It doesn't feel like that now. Remember, Lord, that you, you said you were going to dwell in the temple we built you on Mount Zion that temple over there that's smoking remember that lord there's a bit of exaggeration here i think so when he says in verse 1 why have you rejected us forever mm, i don't think i do think that's a guarantee that the psalmist had I, I think if he'd read his covenant carefully he he might have known that, that was not the case or well, you get to verse 3 and he says turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins It seems like there's a bit of exaggeration here. We'll come back to that point. But what prevails here, do you pick up the tone, is a sort of smashed silence. Smashed because you get verses like verse 4, that your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. What that means is they'd get their military banners, you know, the big thing that they carried in battle, and they they put it in the temple, or they put it in the royal palace. And they just laughed about it, you know, ha, 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 Babylon wins, and (laughs) off they go. But that's in the temple where God promised to dwell. Or verse 5 over the page. They behave like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and hatchets. Remember all that stuff in the Old Testament where God commissions artists and he makes people fantastic at artwork and there's pomegranates and beautiful scenes in the temple? And now it's just covered in axe wounds. It's just smashed a bit. And the most pomegranate you might see is a little fragment on the ground as you pick through the rubble. (laughs) What's happened? Or verse 7, they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. They just burned it. That was their policy. If you go to the British Museum in in Hoburn, even today, there's a room there where you can see the the charred black walls of Babylonian fire. It was was their policy. When they came to a city and they beat the city, they torched it. And there's a whole room in the British Museum next to the Rosetta Stone where it's black because the Babylonians torched it. They burned everything. So you get this sort of smashed tone here. And worse get silence, verse 9. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left and none of us knows how long this will be. Prophets were the people who could see, they were the eyes of the people of God, especially when the fog descended and life was confusing and difficult. Prophets were, are called the eyes of God in the Bible and they can see forward into the future and they can bring back a word to the people. And there are no eyes here. There's just a smashed silence. How difficult to have no word from God. It's like when you're on the phone to somebody. Maybe they're driving a car and the line suddenly goes dead. And you can't help but panic. What's happened? Hello? Hello? Is anyone there? And there's silence for the people of God. What is going on? God is holding back for some reason, and I don't seem to know why. When I was at Bible College, uh, there was a football team, and uh, there was one particular referee who used to referee our matches semi-regularly, and um, he was really lenient. So, uh, you know, as football players do, there's a a suspected foul, and uh, half of them, we we turn to look at the referee to see if he's going to give a foul or not, and this particularly genial and lenient referee, he'd more often than not say, I'll oh, play on. He would just shrug and say, play on, carry on. And it, this could get really bad. So someone could put in a two-footed challenge, you know, off the floor, studs showing, and the guy would be rolling around on the floor. It was evident that the guy was angry, and the referee might just shrug and say, I'll oh, play on, carry on. Is God holding back justice like that? Asaf asks. Is he shrugging his shoulders and saying, play on, don't worry about it, doesn't seem that bad? That's his puzzle in verse 10. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? If you're the referee in this world, why do you hold back the whistle? Why? Here's the thing in this psalm. We're not told. Isn't that strange? We're not told. We are told answers in the rest of the Bible, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are sermons I could preach to you about uh, how the human race needs to learn how evil it is and get handed over to evil, Romans 1. Uh, We need to know in other sermons and other parts of the Bible that um, Judah has to learn that the covenant curse is real. And this was all prophesied in Deuteronomy 28. There are other sermons I could preach to you about Um, this is the church learning that God can discipline those he loves, and sometimes he might even cause pain so that I learn to cling to him and not to the things of the world, Hebrews 12. I could preach you that sermon, but I won't today. Uh, We we need to learn in the church that that God is being patient, he's holding back justice, 2 Peter 3, while people come to repentance. But that's not today's sermon either. All of those things are true. But at this time in Israel's history, we know, especially from the book of Jeremiah, where this is written up, that God is dissolving Israel's confidence in their own temple. So they were strutting about saying in in Jeremiah chapter 7, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, nothing can touch us here. It's like they had this immunity that they thought nothing could break through. And here it seems that God is saying, I'm going to take that away from you in order to make you ready for the salvation that I'm bringing. God can dissolve our confidence sometimes in order to make us ready for His salvation. Think of it this way, if God put all the things in your life that you're good at, all the things you have confidence in and He put them on a table. Let's say you had uh, your academic success. You had your job. You had your family. You had your physical appearance. You had your sporting success. You had your personality. All these are sort of laid out physically on the table. And if I were to come along and take one of them away, which would be the one where you thought, Oh, no, Pete, don't take that one. It may be, as God is doing here, that God dissolves our confidence in that, particular thing that we're hanging on to in order to make us ready for his salvation in Jesus Christ. For Judah, that was the temple. What might the national, that's, that's a sort of personal example, what might the national example be for our nation if this is a psalm of national disaster? I think perhaps the day Queen Elizabeth dies might be a day of national disaster. We have a a good, long-serving, kind queen who seems to me to be obviously a converted Christian. And the day she dies, the the throne hands over to someone who, I don't know about their soul. Uh, The country goes into mourning. None of us really have dealt with Queen Elizabeth not being queen before. That's a day of national religious disaster. Or perhaps it's the day that the Church of England just implodes. I don't know what the future has in store for the Church of England, but there may be a day when God dissolves it and parish buildings are handed over to things that aren't really churches in order to teach me and you that our confidence is not in this denomination or this structure. Or it may be the day of national religious disaster when there is so much immorality in this country. There is so little regard for right and wrong. That the only thing a Christian viewpoint on the world gets me is persecution and derision. That might be the day when I just think, oh, this is this is a disaster. Why would God do anything like that? Why would God bring us to that point? Here's the very significant thing that the Psalm tells us. Second point. I know my God brings salvation. Verses 12 to 23. Verse 12, as I said, is the big turning point in the psalm. Do you see verse 12? God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It signals a change in tone and in perspective. I thought Sam read it very well. It's somber at first, and then here there's a but, and things change. There's no answer from heaven, but Asaph thinks, hang on, I know about God, I know what he's done in the past. And then everything you get hereafter is rather emphatic about God. So all the you's all the that you get in verses 7 to 7, uh, 13 to 17 are emphatic. You did this, Lord. You did this. It looks back at his track record. Track records are very impressive, aren't they, if you've got a good one? I, uh, I know nothing about um, stocks and shares, but with that caveat... David Gardner is a man who has made a name for himself in the U.S. for being a a savvy investor. David Gardner, he runs a blog, and for a small, I'm told a very reasonable fee, uh, he will advise me on uh, what stocks and shares I might like to invest in. And in the last two decades, he picked the big three investments in the U.S.A. So he was telling people a long, long time ago on his blog, if you invest in Amazon and Netflix and something called Priceline, then um, you will be fine. And lo and behold, they've gone up by more than 2,000% each in the last uh, 15 years or so. That's a pretty good track record, isn't it? It implies that if I subscribe to David Gardner's blog and um, take his next tip off, uh, well, his track record suggests that it's probably going to make money. God's track record is perfect. Because the thing about God is he can't change. He he doesn't change. He's God. He's God. Immutable is the theological term. So if God has done something in the past, and He is described in verse 12, in our key verse, as one bringing salvation. It's what he does. It's his character. He brings salvation. He will always do it again. These verses are beautiful. They look back at what God has done in the past. In particular, it looks back to uh, the exodus and to creation. So, verse 13. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monster in the waters. That's looking back to when God parted the Red Sea. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. That's um, looking back to Egypt um, in the Exodus account as a sort of many-headed dragon in mythology and saying, you smashed their heads. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. That's looking back to when God opened up the Jordan and let people pass through on their way into the promised land. So it looks back to the Exodus. It goes on even further. It says, verse 16, The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. So as if the Exodus wasn't impressive enough, we have a God who made the earth. You established the sun and moon. So God owns real estate on the moon. And he owns all the land. There's no land on the sun, is there? But he owns the sun. He established it. He made it. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You established the time that I was going to be born and I was going to die. He established when it turns into summer and the daffodils poke their heads through and when it turns to winter and the leaves fall off the trees. He established all that and did it. God is a God who brings about salvation and has the power to do it. You see, it's his character, his track record, and he will do it again. For the Christian, Jesus Christ is my king. So I can read verse 12 in a very special way. I could say, God is my king, yes. But because of the New Testament, I'm also able to say, Jesus is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. And we could go on. A Christian can pray the the second half of Psalm 74, asking for Jesus to come a second time and bring justice. So, to to paraphrase verse 18, remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord Jesus. How foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your church to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your, your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your new covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your church. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. You see, the church still asks questions like, why, Lord, when you pick your way through the rubble of a burning parish church? They still ask questions like, how long, O Lord, when your family and your church is persecuted in a country like India? It's just like Asaph. But just like Asaph, you learn as a Christian believer in the Psalms to ask these questions with faith. So gone in the second half of this Psalm are the questions and the exaggeration and the anger of the first half of the Psalm. And what's come in its place is, just honestly, Lord, I'm asking you to come again. I'm asking you, Lord Jesus, please come quickly. Because this national disaster, this injustice is more than I can bear. That's the big thing I think the Lord would have us do practically as a result of studying this together this morning. Let's ask Jesus to come again. That's such a New Testament prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. It's written into the Lord's prayer that we prayed earlier. Thy kingdom come. The church is required in in all ages, in all generations to say, come, Lord Jesus, because this world is not as good as it gets. There's so much injustice here. Come, Lord Jesus. There's so much suffering here. Come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come. If we do have a daily quiet time or devotion, it is strange, I think, I've been reflecting in my own life, for me not to pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Because Jesus says, when you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, and so on. He just expects us to do it when we pray. And of course, if I'm doing that every day, if I'm praying the Lord's Prayer every day, then I'm also praying, Thy kingdom come every day. Unless the church cries out to God about the violence against our brothers and sisters in places like India, who will? Unless the church cries out to God about babies being terminated in their mother's wombs across the UK and now in Ireland, who will? Unless the church can learn to cry out to God after every terrorist attack that happens in this country, Come, Lord Jesus. Please, please come. Who else is going to say those words? A non-Christians aren't going to say them. God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth, and he invites us. Just participate with me. I want, I want to encourage you, as a, as a child to a father, keep asking me. The one extra thing I'd add about God bringing salvation as we close is this. Make sure you're on the right side of it. There are two sides to salvation. If, if I saw you being mugged in the street, I would want to intervene and I would want to save you. I would want to get you away from the danger and I would also want to lock up the person who was trying to mug you. I want them to see justice. And when God brings salvation, he saves people and he brings justice. Make sure you're on the right side of that equation when God brings salvation to the earth. When it says at the crucial moment in our psalm that God will bring it, it doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It means those who are trusting Jesus will be saved, and those who are not will pay for them, their sins themselves. This week, my uncle was diagnosed with cancer. On, on Tuesday, I had the phone call that nobody wants for anybody in their family, and uh, my mom said, look, Uncle John, he's got advanced cancer in his back, his lungs and his liver they've given him two weeks wow in God's kindness I was near where he lived so I I went to see him on that afternoon and he was a very sick man and he could hardly talk and he was lying in a hospital bed I'm no doctor but he didn't have very long left and he was not a Christian believer and my mum was there, she's a great evangelist and a believer. I was able to be there that afternoon and we were able to explain the gospel to my Uncle John and I had told him, Look, John eleven twenty five says, Uncle John, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die. So even though you die physically, Uncle John, you will not die eternally if you believe in Jesus Christ. And my mum and I were able to pray a prayer prayer with my uncle. It was the most wonderful thing. We were able to pray a prayer. Sorry for the way I've lived. And he repeated after me, even though his voice was failing. Sorry for the way I've lived. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay for my sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to pay for my sins. God, I'm about to die. Please let me into heaven. God, I'm about to die. Please let me into heaven. It was very moving. And I believe God saved my uncle on Tuesday afternoon. He died on Friday night. And he died and my mum was reading him Psalm 139 and Revelation chapter 21 and I, I believe he's been welcomed very warmly by the Lord Jesus now because God brings salvation and he's very, very willing for you to be on the right side of it. Even if you've been ignoring God for 67 years like my uncle had been, very, very willing to have you on the right side of that equation if you trust the Lord Jesus. You do have to say, sorry for the way I've lived. It doesn't matter if you've burned a temple like a Babylonian army or you've just ignored him for 67 years. You do have to say sorry to God. But wonderfully, he is a God who brings salvation. And everyone who says, Jesus is my king, he brings salvation to me, gets a very, very warm welcome from Jesus Christ. so there you have it God is my king from long ago he brings salvation on the earth I don't think my uncle John will be able to say the whole of that psalm I think he'd say God is my king since Tuesday but he would be able to say the important bit he brings salvation on the earth I think perhaps there's no better way to finish in prayer than saying the Lord's prayer together with that line thy kingdom come Give you a moment of reflection and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven.